Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. Today, I'm so excited to announce that we'll be beginning a new series, Speak Freely, where once a month, we'll be bringing you discussions about campus free speech right here from the heart of Princeton University. We'll be kicking off this series with a discussion of the Princeton principles for a campus culture of free inquiry, a set of principles meant to revitalize free speech on campus, which goes beyond the well-known Chicago principles. This document is the result of a meeting here at the Madison program in March of 2023. Here to discuss, we have two of the original 15 signers of the statement who are really key in pulling the statement together. Professor Emeritus Donald Downs of the Department of Political Science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and Professor Keith Whittington, the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics here at Princeton, although he's just announced that he'll soon be moving to Yale. Keith, you'll be very missed. As your host for the day, I'm very excited to introduce my colleague, Jonathan Garafa, who works really closely with our initiative on freedom of thought, inquiry, and expression. He's done so much work on the Princeton Principles, and he's going to be a really able guide for today's discussion. So with no further ado, I hope you enjoy. Keith and Don, welcome to Madison's Notes. Thank you. Thank you. So first, I just want to ask you the grounding question. What are the Princeton principles and why should we care about this document? I'll start with uh, I'll start with Don because um, Don was uh, one of the primary uh, writers. Right. Along with a lot of input. Put it that way. De- yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely a, a kind of joint effort. And I think Keith and I will pretty much say the same thing here. Uh, I mean, university, it's a lot of things go on, especially in the modern university. And so what really matters is what has traditionally mattered. It's a special institution for teaching uh, information and knowledge, but pursuit of knowledge and the pursuit of truth, uh, which is sort of, you know, a little bit different from knowledge because knowledge is our ability to understand truth. And uh, that's really the primary function of it. Uh, but also to teach is kind of a balance because you can't get to truth unless you have enough intellectual freedom and academic freedom because human beings are fallible, uh, because truth can often be very complicated. You know, we change our minds all the time over you know, different things we, we take to be true. And so there has to be intellectual freedom that goes along with it. But, you know, freedom can go anywhere. You can believe two and two is five. As a matter of fact, it's even protected by the First Amendment. So university pursues truth in a certain way, a disciplined kind of way that we try to have academic freedom for everybody, but also sift and winnow. It's a model from Wisconsin. Sift and winnow to get to the truth. What is true? What is not true? At the same time, we appreciate the fact that uh, we may never fully get there. We have to be open to the mind, open to the possibility that mm-hmm. we could be wrong. So universities should be in the business of not only seeking truth and knowledge, but teaching the skills that are necessary to properly sift and winnow and separate truth from falsehood. Mm-hmm. Balance. And the best universities are able to do that. 
And so going along with that, I'm going to ask another grounding question here. What is the core mission of the university? And you mentioned it a little bit, but um, I think that's something that we should be really clear on um, as a as a first principle. Right. Yeah, the pursuit of truth and knowledge and the skills necessary to carry that out. That's that's what I would say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really uh, at the very heart of it. I mean, universities have uh, expanded in what they try to do. They do other things, but the very central element of their mission, the real purpose of universities in general is to try to um, advance the frontiers of human knowledge, to be able to share uh, what we know uh, with the wider community, with the students, with um, other scholars um, in the field uh, more generally. And so uh, that process of um, asking hard questions, uh, trying to um, assess what the quality of evidence and arguments analysis uh, that we might have available to us to help us answer those questions, um, subject um, our conventional wisdom to uh, new skepticism, new criticism. Um, it's all, I think, um, the, the central things universities can do. And while we may add on some additional features um, that we would like universities to do um, as well, uh, at the end of the day, they all need to be compatible uh, with that with that core mission because it's that core mission that really defines universities and makes them special. Mm-hmm. And it does also entail creating the kind of habits, intellectual habits and emotional habits to have due respect for differences of opinion, because those will A, naturally arise, and B, uh, sometimes we're wrong. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a certain kind of character that should be instilled that, are, that is necessary for the thing that, the process that Keith talked about uh, to prevail. Mm-hmm. So um, Keith, you mentioned in your, in your book that one of J.S. Mill's arguments for having uh, free speech is the argument from ignorance um, basically, well, there's argument from conviction, argument from ignorance, and argument from humility. Um, the argument from humility is that we have to have a, a healthy distance from our opinions because there's a possibility we could be wrong. And so is that something that all scholars should see as a model? Um, uh, not just scholars, but anyone participating in the university I think it's essential at the end of the day, um, uh, as scholars, you wind up developing arguments and, and ideas that you believe in. Uh, you have some fair amount of confidence in them. You dedicate portions of your scholarly career to trying to develop them and articulate them and uh, uh, determine what kind of evidence is supportive of them. Um, but despite how much work you put into them and how uh, closely you may be associated uh, with particular ideas, um, it's at the very score, core of the scholarly mission um, to leave yourself open to the possibility you're still wrong. Um, and, and that means in part that you, have to, that you need to take seriously criticisms and need to be willing to engage them um, and not just dismiss them. Um, but also you have to have, I think, a genuine humility of imagining um, that even though you made your best efforts, um, even though you've come to certain conclusions, um, those conclusions all have to be tentative. Um, they all have to be uh, able to be uh, criticized, uh, but potentially reassessed. Um, and if you discover um, at the end of the day that the arguments and evidence uh, point in a different direction, uh, you have to be willing to uh, change your mind um, and try to follow the arguments and evidence where they lead. That's a hard thing to do. It's hard for all of us uh, to do it, I think, in our personal lives. It can be particularly tricky in some ways for a scholar who may have dedicated their entire career uh, to trying to develop a particular idea um, uh, precisely because they thought it was um, 
uh, true and that there was good support for it. Um, and so that's a temptation to start getting defensive about it um, and wanting to protect what you've been doing um, all this time and really sort of dig in um, in defense of it. Um, but uh, no matter how much time and effort you put into a set of arguments, no matter how closely you're associated with them publicly, it's still the case that um, the scholarly's uh, state of mind uh, ought to be one in which uh, you're holding open that possibility uh, that you could have been mistaken um, and you're willing to listen to people um, who want to uh, bring you uh, criticisms and new ideas and new evidence you ought to be uh, taking seriously and trying to think through. Absolutely. That's right on. And, you know, it's so hard to do that, as, as, as Keith said. And you, you study the history of science. You study the history of knowledge. And, you know, Van Kuhn got into this in his book on scientific revolutions. We get committed to paradigms and they define our careers and our prestige and uh, challenges. There's been recent books written about challenges to uh, existing paradigms in science and how difficult it can be because uh, there's a lot of stake. And, you know, people are driven by ambition. You know, this ties you know, think about you know the, our constitution and you know, Jonathan Rauch and constitution of knowledge. Uh, that you know the, the constitution was sort of premised on the idea that we ha- we're driven by ambition and we need to have a republic that is is able to accommodate that because that's part of liberty. But at the same time, there's a downside to that because it can blind us to the truth. It can tie us to our passions. And we end up having you know, committed to our tribe rather than to the public good. And the Constitution was a device meant to try to preserve liberty while also dealing with those uh, down, downsides of liberty. And the university is very similar. And so either you inculcate that kind of character of mind, Keith called it the academic mindset, uh, or you have somebody that uh, is a referee to help uh, guarantee that. And those kinds of bodies, I think, are missing in higher education. We're going to get to that in a moment. Mm. Uh, so, you know, how do you pursue the truth with human interest and passion? Uh, it's a really interesting question, and it's ultimately, ultimately a philosophical question. Yeah, and Don brings up the science and, and Kuhn. There's an old joke in the sciences, uh, how do scientific revolutions um, proceed? And the answer is one funeral at a time, uh, precisely because uh-huh. old scientists who are committed to the old ideas uh, may be very reluctant to change their minds. It's, it's ultimately up to the younger scholars and younger generations that emerge who are open to the new ideas, take the new ideas and run with them. Um, and ultimately, the, the older commitments, older generations sort of uh, die away as it gets taken over by the younger generation. There's some truth in that, I think. It's a, it's a reality that individuals um, uh, may not always remain open-minded um, uh, over time, and so they may uh, be resistant to themselves uh, embracing uh, the new ideas. But it also highlights one of the things that's really essential about academia as an institution, um, that it can't allow those individuals um, who may be uh, reluctant to take on the new ideas, very defensive about the old ideas, mm-hmm. to then try to suppress the debate so their students and their younger colleagues can't be exposed those new ideas and so they can't adopt new ideas right because not not only is there a temptation for you yourself to become very defensive and unwilling to change but if you have any influence there's also a temptation to not allow other people (laughs) to really take seriously uh those criticisms and really try to suppress the debate um and so if 
when there are these big sweeping changes in a set of ideas that are terribly important in a particular scientific discipline, for example, um, it's it's not only the case that individuals ought to try to keep themselves open-minded, um, but it's really, really essential that the institutions uh, remain open um, to challenge and, and new ideas. We not allow anybody uh, to try to shut down those debates um, out of fear that somebody else is going to be persuaded by them. And that gets to the question of intellectual diversity on campus, which would certainly come up at some point in our discussion. Because if you're surrounded by people that might disagree, then disagreement becomes more institutionalized and part of your your habit. Uh, But if you're surrounded by people in a kind of echo chamber, you start, it's like a fish that doesn't know it's in water. Because this is the obvious truth. But an irony here, coming off of what Keith said, and I think Mill gets at this pretty well in On Liberty, is that it's, it's the, the paradox is that it was the very ambition that compelled many scientists, for example, to create new paradigms. It's like an agonistic struggle between generations, or however you want to put it. That very ambition, which got them to develop a new truth. You know, apparently a biography of Copernicus talking about when he when he developed his ideas, he felt like he was challenging God, you know, and, and mm-hmm. he praises that type of person. Right. It's his model. But at the same time, that's a very ty- type of personality that once you find what you think is truth, it's going to close you off. And so you know, how do you deal then with intellectual ambition? Uh, you have to have these kind of guardrails. And I think, you know, the Princeton principles is really something we tried to get at uh, was create the right kind of guardrails to ameliorate, to, to foster that kind of ambition. At the same time, you um, make it kind of sublimate itself or be more reflective. And it's a constant job because the gravity is in favor of the human nature that doesn't want to be that way. And that's why democracy is a constant struggle. Right. It kind of wants... Um wants to be content with the ideas that have been pushed forward currently, um, a sort of an orthodoxy, if you will. Um, and uh, I wanted to touch a little bit on the principles uh, history, because I know that there is a really influential document that um, on first glance says a lot of uh, some of the same things. So the, the principles refers to the Chicago principles of free expression in its introduction. Um, And these principles argued, quote, the Chicago principles of free expression 2014 argued that universities should remain committed to free, robust and uninhibited debate and deliberation. Uh, The Princeton principles for campus culture of free inquiry affirm this view while extending its scope, unquote. So my question to you is, um, considering what we've the groundwork we've laid already, what is the difference in scope between the 2014 Chicago principles of free expression and the recently released Princeton principles? And, and why was there a need to release a new set of principles? Um, what, what new ground does the Princeton principles cover that previous documents have not? Okay. Well, Keith, you gave it to me the first time. I'll give it to you this time. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think in part the, the Princeton principles are um, more encompassing about what it's trying to do with the Chicago um, uh, principles uh, drafted a few years ago. Uh, it was really focused on is questions of free expression um, on the campus uh, broadly, um, which um, in part is interesting in that it tries to 
uh, not only emphasize the role of faculty, but also everybody else um, as part of the campus community and the importance of them having the ability um, to uh, discuss ideas without fear of uh, retribution or retaliation for uh, controversial um, ideas they might um, express. Um, that's an important principle um, of universities, but it's only, I think, one of the things that you would ultimately want to have um, if you want to secure a university as being a um, effective institution that's really committed to free inquiry. Um, so part of what the Princeton Principles was doing, I think, is really trying to bring together um, a lot of different um, components of what we might think of as kind of comprehensive uh, free inquiry um, uh, set of commitments um, uh, in a university. Um, I think also the details of the, of the Princeton Principles are um, somewhat distinctive in that, as Don mentioned, um, they take into account how universities have changed over time. Um, so uh, there have been very influential statements about academic freedom that were drafted in the early 20th century. Um, uh, for example, we see the Calvin Report um, about mm-hmm. institutional neutrality that was drafted um, at the University of Chicago in the early 1970s. Um, but it's a, lot, a lot has changed since the 1970s, let alone the early 20th century. Universities look very different. There's a much uh, more complicated organizational environment um, inside of universities, a lot more people with different kinds of roles and positions um, in universities than once was the case. Um, And so I think the principals do a nice job of um, uh, securing uh, the same firm commitments uh, that you see in some of these earlier documents, um, but um, extending uh, the logic and reach of them to incorporate uh, the wider array of things that you see on a modern university campus. Right. Yeah, that, that, that thing sums it up very well. You know, we deal with the culture. And let me start by, you know, the Chicago principles were, were fantastic. And, you know, Jeffrey Stone, a law professor at Chicago, who was a principal author of that, he's really, he's, he's been a real champion in terms of both scholarship and in terms of his, his activities uh, to promote freedom, in intellectual freedom and uh, civil liberty in America. I mean, it's his first rate uh, project. And uh, we applaud the, the Chicago principles, but we delve into the culture. And that includes different, as Keith mentioned, different domains on campus, you know, the classroom, the public forum, extramural speech, uh, and things like that. And also, you know, the obligations of the administration. And we deal with the bureaucratic problem, which I'm sure we'll be talking about because that, you know, I, my view is the university has been turned upside down. Uh, for a university to work, faculty have to be the key drivers. You know, we shouldn't be in a, we're not like kings or queens, but we should be the key, the key driver because we're the experts and we're the ones who are supposedly knowledgeable about all the principles. Uh, but with the new bureaucratic situation on campus, it's been turned up to one, one off the cuff student complaint goes to the bureaucracy and it doesn't matter who you are, you're going to get dragged in to the DEI office and interrogated. And so there's a pall of orthodoxy that can be spread over the campus. Uh, we get into that kind of stuff, and we also talk about some of the problems that have created this situation in the first place. So we just, as Keith said, we dig deeper, I think, than uh, than Chicago does. Uh, and also, since Chicago came out, there's schools that adapted the Chicago principles that have come up as uh, problem cases in the uh, Academic Freedom Alliance. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's easy to pay lip service to something. We're asking people, institutions to show more than just lip service. So we extend Chicago. But, you know, without Chicago, we may not have even come about in the first place. Sure. And I'd like to note Princeton University has adopted the Chicago principles for, uh, in case our listeners uh, didn't know that. Uh, So did Wisconsin. 
or the whole system was it was adopted here. But it also matters how you adopt it. I mean, Chicago, they went through the faculty, I think, right? Uh, here, it was done by the regents. It never was put before the faculty. And there are a set of reasons for that I won't get into, but uh, that does mean that if you if it goes through the institution, that's usually a sounder basis because it's, it's derived some consent on campus and people have had to agree to it as opposed to just having it sort of um, issued from on high. Right. In Princeton's case, the because it occurred through a faculty vote, it also became incorporated into our governing rules and regulations uh, for the university. And so it has binding consequences uh, for how the university um, operates, which is not always yeah. true. So some places have adopted it more as a symbolic uh, resolution. That's important. It helps establish a culture and encourage the nurturing of a culture uh, committed to free expression. Um, but at the end of the day, you also want some uh, real rules um, in place that are consistent strain um, how administrators and others uh, behave, something you can appeal to um, uh, in the context of disciplinary hearings and other things. Um, And so I think there was a lot of value in trying to um, uh, not make this purely symbolic at a place like Princeton, but really uh, make this part of the functioning of the of the university. Right. And that's the case here at Madison, because uh, what we did, we've been doing this stuff now for almost 30 years. And uh, a lot of what went into the Wisconsin system statement uh, based on Chicago was drawn from rules that we have here on our own campus. So in that sense, we were, we did it, we did it from the bottom up here, but the uh, system adopting the Chicago principles, that was from the top down. And um, if, if, if folks want to refer to the actual, um, you call it legislation within Princeton, uh, I believe it's rights, rights, rules, and responsibilities section 1.1.3 and part of 1.1.4, um, right? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. So our governing document is called Rights, Rules, and Responsibilities. It's available online um, and it's publicly accessible. Um, and uh, this, the uh, principles contained in the Chicago Statement uh, were integrated right at the top of, of the Rights, Rules, and Responsibilities, uh, which is symbolically nice uh, and sort of reflecting that it really is a foundation stone uh, for, the whole, uh, for the whole university. Yeah. Same, same thing here. I'm going to continue with the Princeton principles, um, just looking at the introduction, uh, continuing on by describing the part that describes a, a special fiduciary duty. So that's kind of a fancy word, fiduciary, but I looked it up and it says in the dictionary, it says involving trust. So could you describe the trust between universities and um, the public and this phrasing special fiduciary duty, how does that underscore the responsibilities of the university in our society? I'll start this 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 round. Uh, I, 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 three reasons, I think. I hope I remember all three. Uh, one is that universities have historically served society. Uh, they're not just, uh, you know, they're there for a reason. And just so that you look, go back to the history of the reading founding documents and things like that, and uh, Keystone, a lot of that, uh, they all talk about that service. And the original presidents and chancellors, whatever, they talked about the public service aspect of the university. And uh, related to that, there was a special, this is the second point, is a special kind of duty. Because going back to our original discussion, we are the, the preeminent institution that is there to pursue truth and knowledge and to instill the intellectual virtues that make that quest possible. And that in turn creates better citizens 
for our society, more thoughtful citizens, mm -hmm. citizens who are more likely to weigh pros and cons. And I think sort of a lot of writers did this, and I've done it myself in writing, that maybe the model for this is the jury. When you're mm -hmm. in a criminal trial and you're picked as a juror or a civil trial, criminal makes it more dramatic. Uh, your job is to leave your prejudices at the door. And that you're trying to make determine what happened and whether or not the defendant is culpable. And it doesn't matter whether you like that defendant or you don't like that defendant. You need to think as objectively as possible about the situation. And that makes your decision just. And so there's a tension, there's a, not a tension, but a relationship between what a university's mission is and truth and the pursuit of truth and respect for that pursuit and the viability of a constitutional democracy. That's how I look at it. And then three, um, it's also that in some ways, you know, the autonomy that we've been granted as an institution in our charters, and uh, especially this applies to state universities, but it can also apply to private universities depending on how, the, you know, how they were set themselves up and what's in their charters. And that is that we've been given basic autonomy to determine for ourselves core academic decisions, to put it just briefly. And in exchange for that, it has been assumed that we will fulfill that particular fiduciary duty. And in that do we have other duties we do, but that is the key one. And that's what makes us distinct from, say, you know, a, you know, the Salvation Army or a political party or some other kind of institutions. Each major institution has its own distinctive reason for existing. And ours is what we've already articulated pursuit of truth and knowledge through intellectual freedom and creating the habits of mind that make that quest possible and therefore contribute to citizenship in a constitutional republic. And if we don't prioritize that as our major mission and then stick to it when the going gets tough and some group gets mad at us for allowing something to be said, then we're letting down society and we're not fulfilling our end of the bargain. Hmm. We can expect society at some point to come back and say, wait a minute, we're giving you all this money or all these donors are giving you money and you're not fulfilling the reason we're giving you the money. And do you, do you happen to have an example of, of a time when that happened? Well, it's right in the last, right now, mm -hmm. uh, not you know, the cancel culture on campus. So, you know, they're the primary example. And we can think, you know, the dozens of such examples uh, going on all the time. And the AFA has dealt with many individual cases in that regard. So that would be a major one. I think um, I would say, you know, during the McCarthy period, uh, of course, there that was on the side of the, you know, the government was pushing that. Uh, and um, uh, so it's, it's a recurring kind of problem. But any time the free speech has been denied on campus or can't, you know, take Middlebury and Charles Murray is just made the most dramatic example. Uh, then that university is not, not fulfilling its duty. It's letting, it's letting angry students take over the mission of the university. And it's not standing up to the plate and doing its job. Now, I remember, um, I also, I, I read Keith's book to also like supplement uh, my preparation. And um, I remember Keith describes how the relationship between a professor and the university is not like any other employer-employee relationship um, in the sense that the professor is given certain, um, certain rights and 
privileges to follow the research where it where it is supposed to go um, and is supposed to be allowed to say things um, that might even conflict with the university's branding, so to so to say. And that's different from an from uh, I guess a standard employer employee relationship that someone who speaks against their employer or questions the practices of of the employer uh, could theoretically face some retribution for that. So could you describe a little bit more like what is why is free speech and academic freedom so important um, in relation to the special privileges of a of a professor faculty member? Yeah, so it's a central argument that the American Association of University Professors was trying to advance in the early 20th century when they were first organized, um, that uh, universities should not simply think of um, the members of the faculty um, as mouthpieces for uh, the views um, and opinions um, of, in particular, the donors um, who uh, made up the board trustees who were contributing uh, to universities uh, in particular. So um, especially in the context of private universities, um, it was very common uh, for um, uh people who are coming in from different kinds of industries um, to uh, be serving as trustees um, and the like and have an expectation um, that if uh, they found an employee of what they thought of as their university um, who was uh, behaving in ways that they didn't approve of, um, uh, spouting opinions that they uh, thought were harmful to their own personal interest, um, that you ought to uh, get rid of that person um, uh, in order to clean up your own organization. So it was a, it was a hard one. Uh, fight to try to um, persuade uh, trustees uh, and donors to think differently about universities, to think of university faculty um, as being differently situated um, than uh, would be true of employees at lots of other uh, organizations and businesses. Um, and that the job of the faculty ultimately uh, was not to reinforce uh, the particular perspectives and views um, of influential figures at the university, um, but to pursue the truth as best they could. Um, and that you therefore had to give uh, faculty um, a significant amount of freedom and independence um, to be able to um, develop those ideas, articulate those ideas, to teach those ideas. Um, and you had to um, uh, persuade uh, universities as institutions, university presidents uh, and trustees um, to tolerate uh, faculty um, who express ideas uh, that the trustees uh, find to be wrongheaded um, or that they disagree with or that they uh, think um, are hurtful to their own interest or even to the university uh, particularly. And it goes back to this notion that there's a fiduciary duty that universities ultimately have to perform for society more generally. The point of the university as an institution uh, is to engage in truth seeking and we can't allow particular individuals um, associated with the university to pervert that mission in order to try to um, uh, redirect it away from uh, free inquiry toward the truth and toward uh, certain kinds of favorite opinions. That's true at the institutional level. And one uh, implication of that is there's a similar uh, duty and responsibility on the part of the faculty um, to tell the truth as best you can. Um, and, and then you need a freedom from the university uh, that will um, tolerate and allow you uh, to um, express that truth. But it's important, I think, I think I like the language of fiduciary duties in part because it does 
emphasize the extent to which uh, this isn't uh, just a discretionary act. Um, it's not just um, a matter of freedom. Uh, ultimately, it's a responsibility. Um, it's a duty uh, that the university owes to society, that faculty um, owe uh, to their profession, uh, to their students, uh, to their colleagues, and to ultimately to society as well. Um, and so uh, I think it's easy to lose sight of that, um, to get so caught up in your own sort of personal interest and battles and, and preferences. Um, it's easy to forget the fact that, that you, you actually do owe something for all the privileges that you have uh, as an academic. Um, and, and, and part of what you owe um, is the willingness to be open-minded, the willingness to help build an institution uh, that is open to free inquiry, um, the willingness to tolerate people uh, with divergent um, ideas, a willingness to engage um, in critical analysis and discussion uh, with uh, people with divergent ideas and not simply uh, try to shut them down, and then a willingness to speak the truth as best you can, even when it's hard, um, even when you're going to have pressure and pushback and it's unpopular um, in various ways, um, that nonetheless, it's, it's ultimately the responsibility of academics to be willing to stand up and say, look, I know this is not the common view. I know others are going to have heated disagreements, um, but this is what I see as being true um, about these circumstances and to, and to articulate it. And if we're not willing to do that and we're not willing to nurture an institution uh, that will support us in doing that, um, that we really are perverting the mission of the university and ultimately um, falling down on the responsibility that we have uh, to society more generally. So that, that when Jonathan asked me about examples, that would be a key example, is faculty not standing up when they should. And you go back to the AUP in the 1915 statement on academic freedom and tenure, they talk about the duty, the kind of character of a faculty member to be able to stand up to the conventional view and challenge it if that's what he or she believes to be true. And uh, we think in the Princeton principles, we talk about this, how one reason we got to where we got is faculty has let it happen. So that would be another example. Uh, but you know, a very quick point too, that it seems counterintuitive to the average person. We have tenure protections and when we're able to have them. And now that's less than half of the teaching positions have tenure. And we have this special privilege. You can criticize your institution if the institution is abiding by the the conditions that, that Keith has articulated, you can criticize your institution or try that in the fire department. Sure. Try, try that in a corporation, right? Uh, and so people say, well, who do you think you are to have this? Uh, and we ran, we've run into that here uh, in a couple of very difficult cases where we had to take a stance in favor of academic freedom where the person was a real scoundrel, but the administration totally misbehaved on how they dealt with it. Uh, so uh, that's it's, it's a tough thing to get across. But if we don't give faculty that freedom, then we can't carry out our fiduciary duty. Our fiduciary duty. So uh, we have it's incumbent upon us then to abide by that faculty right, but also to educate people as to why we need it. And I think we've we've failed in that for a variety of reasons, partly because we're so busy with other stuff. And maybe we assume that the public's going to catch on. But we it's so it's a, it's I love the way Keith put it. It's not just a right. It's a duty. And it's a duty. You notice a duty when you feel like you should say something, but you're afraid to. Hmm. And you don't live up to your duty. That's what a duty is, something that's generally often hard to do, right? This can be hard. And they, the public says, oh, there's just another faculty member spouting off. 
they don't feel any sense of responsibility. The fact is they might be feeling the highest sense of responsibility, depending on the circumstance. So um, I want to continue um, to talk about something else that the Prince and Principles addresses, which is um, today it's a pretty hot button issue. It's uh, extramural speech. And so um, extramural speech is basically when uh, a faculty member speaks um, on social media or somewhere like outside of the classroom. Um, and so the principal, Princeton principles state venues where free speech should obtain include public forums and lectures, social media, and the kaleidoscopic multitude of everyday interchanges that enliven campus life, unquote. Um, so uh, this seems like a, another new um, piece of territory that Prince of Principles addresses. So uh, how, how does the principles, Prince of Principles address the idea of extramural speech in a way that previous documents don't? Well, Keith is the extramural expert. I'll let him start again on this one. Uh, yeah, so it's just a question of how it does it in ways that, that others don't. I think it's certainly more uh, detailed uh, than what you would see um, in lots of other uh, discussions about it and, and emphasizes um, how uh, many people in the university ought to um, be able to enjoy that kind of freedom to be able to express their uh, personal views um, in public um, uh, without worrying that their um, employer is going to retaliate against them um, if those uh, views are, are unpopular. Um, this is a very longstanding um, feature of uh, the academic freedom debate um, in the United States. Um, the AUP, uh, when it was first articulating principles of academic freedom, included um, uh, this. There was some debate uh, within uh, the association um, at its founding as to whether or not this was something that ought to be um, uh, protected, um, because it's certainly very different than um, the kinds of protections that uh, are necessary for uh, teaching um, and for uh, research. Um, but ultimately, the AUP settled on thinking that this is an important thing to protect um, as well. And I think um, uh, we've seen lots of examples of why it's actually essential uh, that you be able um, to protect uh, this kind of extramural speech. Um, and so just to put out sort of two kinds of examples um, that are quite different, but um, uh, and, and they show the range, I think, of, of extramural speeches that occur. So one, you can imagine a professor um, going into public to talk about their research interests, to try to share their expertise uh, with the public more generally. It's part of what we want faculty to be doing, that part, again, to go back to this sort of idea of there's a public trust um, that you're trying to serve as, a, as an academic. Part of what you're doing is developing a kind of expertise in a subject matter. And when that expertise is relevant um, to things that are happening um, in public and political debates, um, you want faculty to be able to share that expertise um, in order to try to inform the public, inform policymakers um, about um, uh, what we know um, on that uh, particular um, uh, topic. But that expertise can sometimes be controversial, and it may well be that people don't care very much if you're doing it in scholarly monographs that only other academics are reading, or you're doing it in the classroom uh, that not very many people are seeing. But the first time you go out in public and start talking about it, uh, suddenly you might wind up with a lot of uh, pushback. And so if we don't protect the ability of people to go 
out into public and talk about their scholarly ideas. Um, ultimately, we're not doing a very good job protecting the scholarly ideas themselves, and we're not fulfilling our duty um, to try to share expertise uh, with the public more generally, which is the ultimate point um, of what we're trying to do uh, more broadly. The other kind of example, though, is, is quite different, and I think in some ways um, uh, not as obvious as to why you'd want to defend it, which is imagine going out in public and talking about things you have no particular expertise about, um, but instead they're just matters of your own personal opinion. Um, so um, everybody on campus has their own particular political views. Um, those personal political views may not have anything to do uh, with this kind of scholarly research um, that people are engaged in. Um, and yet um, these sort of core principles of protecting extramural speech say, um, that uh, universities likewise uh, should be protective of that um, and should uh, not punish people uh, for expressing controversial political views um, um, off campus. I think that if you don't do a good job of protecting um, even that, it will ultimately back up on those core scholarly concerns that we're most concerned about. And so um, I, I think there's not a first order reason for wanting to defend um, a faculty who um, simply are expressing uh, personal political opinions um, in, in public. Um, but if we don't do a good job of protecting that, if we set up the kind of mechanisms uh, for censoring uh, that kind of speech um, and monitoring that kind of speech um, as well, um, it will eventually uh, encroach on our ability to um, talk about uh, the core scholarly expertise that we have um, in, in a larger public arena. So I think it's uh, critical for universities to draw a very bright line uh, to simply say uh, that you're, we're not going to punish um, uh, members of our campus uh, for expressing controversial things in public. Part of what universities are committed to um, is the development and expression of controversial ideas. Um, and when people out in the world encounter uh, that feature of universities, um, it's critical universities are willing to stand up and say, that's a feature and we're going to protect it. And we're going to maintain it. And we're not going to punish people uh, for expressing themselves in this way. I think that that's exactly right. I, I like how Keith distinguishes first order and second order normatively, but then in terms of policy, we should be the same kind of bright line. And you think of the, just recently with the uh, Israeli crisis mm -hmm. and the teacher at Cornell went out there and very strongly cheered Hamas on in language, which meant you know, they agreed with their tactics and their ideology of exterminating Israel. And all the shouts to fire him, apparently there's 11,000 people signed a petition. That's an example of extreme, but it, it was an area that he was a scholar in, if I recall, I, I think that's right. Uh, you know, something about the issue. Um, and then you have the case uh, of a woman at UC Davis who actually made sort of more generally threatening comments about people that covered, even covered that crisis in the wrong way. And it was very extreme, approaching being a kind of a threat. And I think we still determined whether or not it crossed that line or not. And a threat is not protected speech. We have a whole section on that in the Prince of Principles, pretty much drawn from Chicago. And um, uh, those are very controversial. But then, you know, how do you draw the line? Now, the uh, John Wilson, who is one of the main writers for the AUPs, one of their academic freedom advisors and everything, long history. Uh, and I'm sure Keith's had encounters with him. And I have two over the past. And I, I shouldn't say encounters, because even though we've often disagreed, it was always very um, collegial. 
And, you know, John and I go way back and he wrote a strong critique of the Princeton principles on three grounds. And hmm. one was the extramural speech thing, because we conclude that you should never, never um, punish uh, or sanction someone for their extramural speech as long as it's protected. Uh, and that would include even considerations of the advancement, the raises, you name it. And he said, well, it's not really possible for that to exist in the real world, because sometimes people say things are just so outrageous. Uh, you shouldn't even want them on the campus. And uh, my, my reply to that was I said, admit this is the one area in the Princeton principles where um, it, it, reasonable differences are more likely to occur. And I said, we took a more libertarian position because for reasons that Keith articulated, that we just don't know if you, if you don't draw the line of protecting it, then where else are you going to, where, where else can you draw it? It is really slippery slope arguments sometimes are overdone, but it seems given our experiences and a lot of what went into the Princeton principles wasn't just based on studying and reading history and all that. People in that room have had experience in this battle on campus for a long time. So experience informs your, your position as, as well as your, your knowledge uh, that, you know, drawing a line there is exceedingly difficult. So we took, we decided to err on the side of, of liberty in this area. And uh, we also went out and made a further comment that uh, universities should be not, um, should not, criticize what someone says in extramural speech in a way which turns that person into a pariah. Right. And I think that was sort of controversial too, but I think it's very important because part of the problem we're dealing with is not simply the bad, bad rules that are applied or good rules that are applied badly, but the culture and people becoming pariahs for things they say that are unpopular. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's a real concern because that, that that you know that that silences. And you know, Greg Lukianoff and uh, his co-author uh, Shad, I guess her name is, a young a young woman student who was with a, a intern for Fire, have a new book out. And that's really one. I haven't read it yet, but I've, I've talked to to Greg about it, and I've read reviews already. I've ordered it. Is that you know it's the culture. It's the right. it's the silencing that goes of people that are afraid to speak up, and so you have because the other groups, more vocal groups dominate. And if you say something politically incorrect, then, you know, you're going to be a pariah, you're going to get bullied online or what have you. That's where the real problem is. And I want to um, cut in here. So we've talked, we've spoken a lot about how, um, how faculty should speak um, and speak freely. Um, could you speak a little bit to uh, you've already touched on it a bit, but how should institutions speak or not speak? What is what is institutional uh, neutrality? I know um, we're we're uh, we're coming up on time, but maybe you could address that a little bit. Yeah, it's a real it's a especially today, right? With yeah. the, how do you respond to the Israeli crisis? Sure. Yeah, that's a good example. Uh, yeah. We would stick by our guns. It's similar to what we've been talking about. In some ways, we've been talking about both extramural speech and the university being neutral. Yeah. Uh, because the university is not neutral. It creates pariahs. Uh, it sort of says, here's the right way to think about something. And it, it stacks the deck on controversial issues. And so the preferred position is institutional neutrality, unless it's something that directly affects the operation uh, of the university itself. And uh, uh, so taking a position on the war in Ukraine uh, would be an example. Why do that? Uh, it's not part of the operation of the university. A very important issue 
Don't get me wrong. And I uh, care a lot about it, but that's not the institution's role. And I think the problem you're seeing with these people's statements that are being made by the university now, or those who are taking a neutral position, is that they didn't do it in the past. So they're looking, it's looking like they're hypocritical. And uh, uh, in some ways, some people say, well, doesn't this new crisis show that you're wrong in adopting the Calvin type principle for the prison principles? In my view, it, it affirms what we did, because the reason this has become controversial is because universities now suddenly you're not talking about this horrible case that happened yeah. Yeah. before you talked about everything under the sun, you know? So I think it's a, I think it's a, it's the right position because it's consistent with everything we've been talking about. And the university has to use judgment in doing it. It's sometimes it's going to be a difficult decision and they may, sometimes they might take a position when they, they shouldn't, but the key is to keep this principle in mind when you're making that decision. I, I like, I just wanted to uh, mention how, how the Princeton principles phrase it. Cause I, 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 it's stuck in my mind. Um, in some quote, in some, if an academic institution is not required to adopt a position in order to fulfill its mission of intellectual freedom or operational capacity, it is required not to adopt a position. And I think that that was a pretty succinct summary of uh, institutional neutrality. No, right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, wonderful. And uh, so I wanted to give you one last question. Um, I know we're coming up on time, but um, I want to give you guys a chance to uh, to address uh, a part of the principles that uh, some of the media c- coverage of the Princeton principles has addressed. Um, so uh, the principles do mention that government intervention may be considered, quote, as a last resort, unquote, to defend free speech and academic freedom. Um, And I'll read a more precise uh, wording here. So uh, the document principles state, quote, governments along with trustees and regents may legitimately prohibit speech codes and related policies that inhibit or punish speech protected by free speech, jurisprudence, and academic freedom, unquote. so can you elaborate on the conditions that would be necessary before uh, this last resort of government intervention is opened as a possibility and what other means would have to be uh, exhausted before, um, before this uh, possibility comes into play? <laughs> yeah, it, it, we gave a lot of this was the last thing we talked about and I wanted to make sure that it was a, a limited thing and that yeah. if there's any kind of involvement from outside it has to be for positive reasons expanding and you know and government's done that in so many other areas right you know harassment laws and uh, other kinds of you know non-discrimination laws that come from outside the university the, the universities were very sympathetic to them in the first place these are government mandates and so we're talking about a government mandate for free speech, if indeed it is necessary. Uh, back in 2000 and roughly 2002 or three, Alan Kors, who's one of the uh, signers of our document and a big contributor to what we did, and of course, is I consider him the godfather of academic freedom and intellectual freedom on campus. Uh, he got the uh, influenced the uh, Department of Education and the Office of Civil Rights within it to um, pass a, uh, resol- a regulation, I think it had the status of regulation, I don't know, Keith might know more about this, but to state, where it was one of these letters to universities, that 
in applying your harassment laws or, or policies and any other policy, you must abide by First Amendment principles. And so that became, it was something from the Department of Education that applied to universities. And I didn't hear anybody raising major uh, concerns about that. So those are the kinds of conditions that we would endorse. And if a university situation was such that cancel culture was the norm, and speakers are getting shouted down, et cetera. These are, there are certain anecdotes or certain events that could raise an alarm. Or you could do a survey, which we've done in the University of Wisconsin system, that deals with, uh, to sort of try to get at the reluctance of students to speak their minds honestly and freely. Uh, and that showed that there was a fair, lot of that happening. FIRE has done similar kinds of surveys. Uh, a problem I see in the politics of this is that often you read about something that happened at one school and you assume it's happening at this other school. And therefore, we're going to get outside intervention in this other school, even though there's no evidence to justify it. And as I've written, as, you know, higher education is a vast, we've got 4,000 institutions, 5,000 institutions, depending on how you define them. Uh, there's all sorts of cases where things are going well. There's cases where they're not. There's cases where it's sort of gray. And so what, what the document, and we, this is only the, at the end of the document, it's the least thorough part of it, but the assumption why there is this sort of bar of clear and convincing evidence is that you need some evidence to justify it when you do it. And then when you do it, you got to be really careful because of the history of outside intervention, the principle of autonomy matters, and then you have to have some real basis for doing it. And when you do it, it should only be to make sure that there's more speech, not less. And I think that's a pretty mm -hmm. reasonable position was all is said and done, unless it, unless some government, some state government takes it as a mandate to run off and do something ridiculous. And we criticized what happened in Florida in a couple incidents. I mean, Keith's written about this in a in law review, a great law review piece uh, about the, you know, the divisive concepts principle. You know, we take that on in the document. So uh, we just, there's a role if you expand, if you help the problem uh, rather than, uh, than, than, you know, be, be negative. Uh, so I think that's, that's, it's meant to be purely constructive and limited to an evidence-based kind of situation. Yeah, I think it's fair to say there's a range of views uh, among those of us who are involved in the project about um, uh how uh, healthy uh, the free inquiry culture is on university campuses and um, what might be necessary in order to try to improve it. I think Don and I both um, are still somewhat optimistic about uh, universities and their ability to uh, self-reform. Um, uh, there are others who might be more skeptical of that. Um, I think that's important to uh, remind those who might be tempted to intervene in universities um, that sometimes medicine is worse than the disease, um, that you, uh, if you're not careful, you make the situation uh, worse, um, or you may simply change the valence um, of the um, uh, limitations on free inquiry um, on campus, but you don't actually improve uh, the possibility of free inquiry on campus. And so I think these institutions are extraordinarily delicate. Um, I think outside intervention um, is almost never helpful. Um, and it's important to remind those who are outside of campus that that's 
uh, true and that they ought to be uh, extremely reluctant um, to try to intervene. At the same time, I think it's also extraordinarily important to remind those of us who are on campus um, to go back to our earlier point uh, that they have a responsibility and duty, um, that we made a bargain uh, with society, uh, with trustees, um, with governments um, about what it is we're trying to do on universities. And if we don't live up to that bargain, um, uh, we should expect that there's going to be outside intervention um, at the end of the day. And people who are in the positions of trustees, of regents, of public universities, um, they also have a legal obligation to ensure that universities are living up to their mission. And so it's derelict of their own responsibility um, if trustees look at their university and say, uh, and think, um, uh, we're not actually doing what we're supposed to be doing here, um, and then shrug their shoulders and ignore it. Um, and so given that they have that obligation also, I think it's particularly important for those of us on campus to remember that, that, that other people um, are involved in this process. Other people have their own responsibilities. Um, and our job fundamentally is to make sure that we're living up to the mission of the university so that there is no good justification uh, for outsiders uh, to want to um, intervene. And when there are questions raised about how good of a job we're doing, we need to be able to have an honest conversation about um, whether or not we're doing a good job. Um, we sometimes then have to uh, look internally and, and think about, uh, are there ways we ought to improve and reform uh, the situation? And we ought to be willing to undertake that kind of institutional reform uh, when necessary in order to make sure that we stay um, on, the, on the right track. Um, so I certainly do not want to encourage um, political intervention. As Don mentioned, I've written a fair amount about uh, why I think a lot of the political inventions and suggestions for political intervention that we are seeing now um, are taking us down on a wrong path and will make universities uh, worse off. Um, so I think partially the principles are designed to try to guide um, people to, uh, toward uh, more productive and constructive um, ways of trying to help uh, the university um, while reminding everybody um, uh, what the core mission is um, and the need for uh, all of us to uh, pitch in and try to make sure that we're contributing that mission in, in useful ways. Yeah, we're good at circling the wagons, you know, which, which is human nature. And you know, what we want to do is the university should not become a guild. And a guild exists to perpetuate its own self-interest. And I'm afraid to say sometimes that's what we have done. And because we fought these academic, going back to McCarthyism, there are real reasons we need to be concerned about outside pressures on the university. Uh, but then what happens when we become complacent and we think we're so virtuous ourselves and so open-minded that we don't listen to criticism? It goes back to our very original discussion, the very first point that Jonathan asked. So this is part of that, that uh, issue uh, itself. Uh, and, uh, uh, but notice we spend more time talking about other groups, donors, uh, alumni, students. We haven't talked much about students in, in this session. Uh, and uh, that's happening all over the place. More student groups are getting outside funding and getting uh, trustees and alumni and donors together. I mean, Cornell is a classic example of that. Uh, and uh, uh, so that is happening because of the concern about this kind of thing. We got to remember a lot of these people from outside, they care about the university. They, but they want it to be what it's supposed to be. And uh, uh, and if we don't open our ears to them, as, as Keith has said, then um, uh, we're missing an opportunity to reform ourselves. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we're not above reform. Uh, no one is above reform. And we certainly aren't. Thank you, Don. And thank you, Keith. I really appreciate you taking the time out 
uh, of your busy schedules to join us here on Madison's Notes. And um, we hope to see you again soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. Professors Donald Downs and Keith Whittington on the groundbreaking Princeton principles formulated here at the Madison program. If you're interested in reading the principles, the link is in the show notes, as is the link to Professor Whittington's book, Speak Freely. I hope you enjoyed, and congratulations to Jonathan on doing such a wonderful job at his first episode here at Madison's Notes. If you want to learn more about the Madison program and what we do here on Princeton's campus, you can go to our website, jmp.princeton.edu. There, you'll be able to find not only our initiatives, including this initiative on freedom of thought, inquiry, and expression, but also the recordings of all of our lectures from the previous years and upcoming events and lectures that we'll be hosting here on Princeton's campus. You can also find us on social media, on Twitter, at Madison Program, as well as on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm so excited to see you next time here on Madison's Notes.